Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome to Raising Good Humans. I'm Dr. Aliza Pressman, and today I am having a conversation with Jess Gross. She's an American journalist and editor and a novelist. You definitely know her name because she writes so many incredible articles in the New York Times. Her recent book, Screaming on the Inside, The Unsustainability of American Motherhood, is so good. Screaming on the Inside isn't trying to criticize mothers for this unrealistic expectation that's been placed upon us. It's just eye-opening interviews and anecdotes and research on what this experience is collectively in different contexts and communities. If you enjoy this conversation, please take a little moment that you don't have, but if you could just find it and write a little review, give a five-star rating. And of course, you can DM me on Instagram at Raising Good Humans Podcast and sign up for my free Substack dralizapressman.substack.com and of course subscribe to my Apple Premium podcast the same place you find raising good humans on Apple I want to first apologize because the and this is my own self-consciousness potentially but I do want to make this clear and I talk about this maybe too much but I'm in a field that has both contributed to easing anxiety for parents and to making it so out of control and so huge in scope that I sometimes want to sort of pack up and just not do it because there's support for parents and then there's minutia details that mm. don't support parents, give parents the particularly mothers and primary caregivers, but they give them the impression that there is some sort of holy grail right. And that if they memorize it or learn it or internalize it, that their children will not be messed up in the future. And, you know, there's a pot of gold at the end. And that is certainly not the kind of approach I take or the work I come from, but it is inevitable. I watch it happen every single time. There's somebody or something going on out there in the world that's receiving the information in a way that makes me question the value of the work. And I've tried to make sure that I emphasize the, you know, looking at the forest through the trees and how incredibly 
terrible it would be for all of our children for us to be even close to a B plus parent. But I, I know it's not believable to everybody. And I know that just content is overwhelming. So the apology is just that I'm part of that. And also, I think there's room to make it better for parents. I think you have addressed this in a beautiful and meaningful way. All of us are just getting so many sources of information, so many inputs all the time, so many messages from the culture that's around us. And all of us, you know, are in slightly different cultures, depending on where you live, depending on your family structure, depending on, you know, what is happening there, that even if you're getting messages that are affirming there, it's so easy to find messages that will undermine your confidence in your own parenting, your feeling about yourself as a mother. So what I always sort of try to do is almost show that like every tiny little thing doesn't matter. I don't want to go so far as to say parenting doesn't matter, although there are actually academics who will argue that, that it's like, it's just environment and genes and like parents are just like, you know, landlords, but I don't, I don't go that far, but I do think that we, you know, overestimate how much each day and the micro decisions and the micro interactions we're having with our children matters because most of it matters not at all. It's a consistency over time. It is, you know, creating an environment that is safe and mostly open. And that's, again, that's day in, day out. You yell at your kid one time, like, yeah, everybody yells at their kids one time or Many more than one time. <laughs> right. Uh, uh, and so I, I think, you know, there's just so many different sources of pressure and information that are either outright saying or implying that if you don't get every tiny thing right, the consequences could be dire. And that's just frankly untrue. Like, it's just there's no data that proves that. And, you know, I, I try to think at least that my try that my work is a drop in the bucket of showing people that, you know, it's not really what's going to matter in the long run. I think it is the hardest when parents are, have very small children. I, I, I see the most stress and, you know, confusion and kind of lack of faith in one's intuition when the kids are zero to five, especially when the kids can't talk. You're not getting sort of the feedback that could tell you like you're doing it quote unquote right. And people really feel very vulnerable and and can spiral through that. And I've also, you know, I do think if you don't have a support system in your life and also if you were not raised in a way that you were happy with, that leaves you the most vulnerable. Because I always felt that what was quite protective for me in my early days of parenting was that I had my parents who I was like, they did a pretty good job. Like I can trust my instincts that if I just do pretty close to what they did, it'll be fine. And if you don't have that, it just leaves you feeling like, well, I don't know who to trust or who who to be as a parent. And I, I really empathize with folks in that situation because I think that leaves you just very, very vulnerable to all sorts of conflicting messages and every so-called experts, some of whom don't actually have credentials, will tell you different things that often conflict. And it's so hard to find your way through that primrose path. And one thing that you mentioned that I just want to 
I don't know, reiterate is that the, the research really does highlight that all of those ruptures that happen naturally throughout, forget about th- once in a while, like yelling once in a while, but really you just need to get it right in quotes more often than not. Like most of us, particularly women, don't aspire to 51% of the time. Right. Biggest low bar, but it's actually really, really deeply true that that's kind of, we just need more often than not to have that connection and then to repair when we don't. And that's so doable, but it doesn't seem like it's easy to sell. Like it sounds like if you, if you're buying a thousand books and you're looking at a thousand experts and you're, or non-experts that are talking as experts, whatever it is, chances are you're not like aiming for more often than not. That's just not in your personality. So really getting that message out there that that's real, I think can do a lot. That's such a good point too. And I think the other thing to emphasize about sort of the way that we interact with our kids, right and wrong, especially as our kids get older, my kids are now six and 10, almost seven and 11. It's not clear it's not unambiguous like you did I did the right I handled this situation right it's like I don't know my older daughter's starting puberty she is all over the place emotionally like (laughs) it's not like there is you will get a scorecard at the end of a complicated interaction right well I was gonna say when I say right which nobody can see my hands in quotes the, the more often than not kind of getting it, the right means that you were relatively sensitive and attuned to your kid and then gave them appropriate boundaries at the same time and then moved along with your day. And yeah. the specifics of it, as you said, there is no right. There's no, it doesn't exist. And so it's a false, it's false. It depends on your child's temperament. It depends on your temperament and all exactly. that. So I think it's like, does parenting matter? When you, when you think of parenting, it is like if, if you consider it environment, which I do, because a lot of researchers consider parenting an environmental influence, one among many. And if it's considered an environmental influence, when the research says that it's the most powerful, but it can move the needle for, you know, moving terrible circumstances into tolerable but I think what gets confused about that, confusing about that is simply by having relative sensitivity of care plus boundaries, not like, and again, more often than not. And that's it. If the book just had that one sentence, that would be an entire, you don't need the minutia, but something is getting lost in translation there, that there is a right without quotes around it. And you're absolutely right about like, as your kids get older, your values are so inextricably linked to what would be what you would say or do in a particular circumstance. I mean, when people are like, what's the right age for phones? What's, what about drinking? What about curfews? What about this? It's like, how can you know without knowing your own values? Yeah, absolutely. Now a quick break so I can tell you about my sponsor. I have been trying so hard to be the cook that I want to be. I'm not such a great cook, but I love my caraway home. It's got the most beautiful, non-toxic, easy cooking ceramic, naturally slick surface. 
It's loved by so many people. Caraway Kitchen has such good products. The kitchenware comes in chic shades. I have the gray. There are all these complimentary, easy access storage solutions, and they have thoughtfully designed and complimentary storage so you can be organized. You can have bakeware, cookware, stovetop. It's the best. And Caraway products are made without any toxic materials like PFAS, PTFE, PFOA, or other hard-to-pronounce chemicals. It's easy cooking with ceramics, naturally slick surface, so there's minimal oil or butter necessary, and there's just slide-off-the-pan eggs, easy cleaning, and it all just looks really good while you're doing it. Visit carawayhome.com slash humans10 to take advantage of this limited-time offer for 10% off your next purchase. This deal is exclusive for our listeners, so visit carawayhome.com slash humans10 or use the code HUMANS10 at checkout. Caraway, non-toxic cookware made modern. For a long time, I've been using a humidifier for my skin, for my sleep, for my breathing. There's a problem though, which is that traditional models are notorious for being moldy, really unattractive, and pretty hard to maintain. That's where a canopy humidifier comes in. It's recommended by leading dermatologists and pediatricians. The Little Dreams by Canopy Humidifier is a completely reimagined humidifier that effortlessly hydrates your skin while elevating your home and nursery to promote easier breathing and better sleep for you and your little baby. Canopy's unique features and design make it the easiest, cleanest humidifier out there. It's truly soft, healthy skin's best kept secret. And Canopy's humidifiers have clean, no-mist moisture that effortlessly hydrates your skin to combat dryness, dullness, fine lines and wrinkles. Tassel-free technology inhibits mold growth, which is such a pain and like has been an ongoing struggle between me and other humidifiers over the years. And the parts go right into the dishwasher. It's that easy. Plus, add subtle soothing aromas to your baby's environment with the Little Dreams by Canopy Aroma Kit. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy humidifier. Purchase today with Canopy's filter subscription. Even better, my listeners can use code HUMANS at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your skin and your baby will thank you. I was so resistant to giving any advice at all. I hate the more I report, the less I think advice is useful. (laughs) because it's really hard to get one size fits all. And I think especially parents of children who are not neurotypical, who struggle in, you know, a variety of ways, the advice that might fit for even a a majority of kids is not going to work for their kids. And they feel like they're made to feel like they're doing something wrong or they're not part of the conversation or, and like, it just, it shouldn't be that, you know, I don't, I always say it's like, I don't know your life. Like, I don't know. I know what I think works for my kids. You can ask them in 15 years whether I did, whether it was right. (laughs) But it's like, but the one thing that really sticks with me is something actually my opa, who was a town doctor back in the day that like he went to people's houses with a black bag, you know, he old school, small town doctor. And he would always say, you don't raise 
a daisy like an orchid. Like each kid is different. Each family situation is different. And you're going to, you know, calibrate the way that you speak to each child about their stressors or their, you know, complication and the mess, you know, the exact things that you say to one child might not be helpful or soothing to another child, even within your same house. So that's something I always also think about. I mean, I just used this example recently. My older daughter, like with potty training, which is something all kids have to do, right? And they act like, oh, there's just one way to do it or there's one right way to do it. There's wrong way to do it. We had one way of doing it with my older daughter, which was sort of more directed. And she took to it and it was fine. And then with my younger daughter, I was like, well, we did this the first time. It's going to be great. She turned it into a power struggle. She was like, I can pee in the potty, but I'm not going to because you want me to do it. (laughs) (laughs) And it was like so obvious that she was like, I got your number. And I was like a little, like, honestly, a little impressed. (laughs) (laughs) And it didn't, she didn't get fully potty trained until she went to preschool. And then it was just peer pressure. And I remember being so stressed out by this and feeling like, oh my God, am I doing it wrong now? Should I have done it another way? And it was just like, it all worked out. And it just showed their two different personalities and how like, even if you have chosen like a method and a script for us, a challenge, like it, even two kids within the household ostensibly raised pretty much the same way can have wildly different reactions. It was just like, all right, I have to take, you know, there's only so, and that's sort of like another message that I'm always trying to give people. It's very hard to accept. I struggle to accept it, but like, there's so much you can't control. There's so much you can't control and it is not a reflection of you. And I think because, and and I talk so much about this in the book, we have such an individualistic society and mothers in particular are blamed for any deviation from perfection that their children might have. We need to kind of unlearn this desire to control. And again, that doesn't mean, oh, you have no standards. You let your kids behave however, you know, totally permissive, no rules. That's not at all what I'm saying. But I am saying like, you know, there, you can only control so much and you can do that exactly as you say, by maintaining, you you know, you can always maintain your boundaries. You can always know what your values are in your family and enforce them. But in terms of the outcomes with your children, there's just, they are who they are and, and there just needs to be acceptance of that. I mean, I, the first thing I hoped was that people would see how much of the things we think of as almost table stakes of mothering, of good parenting come from weird and sometimes negative and bad places and don't really necessarily apply to our lives or they're not serving us. So, I mean, one thing that where I started the book, because is sort of chronological, is around pregnancy. I had a super difficult pregnancy with my older daughter. I had hyperemesis, which means just throwing up all day, every day. I got really depressed and anxious, probably because I was throwing up all day, every day. I had to quit a job that I really was, you know, had coveted and I was new at. And so I was not in a good place. I felt really sick and I felt really humiliated and like a failure because I was sick. And then as I was sort of, and for years, my older daughter, like I said, almost 11, for years, four years until I started writing this book, I was just like, you, you failed at that. There's something wrong with you. There's something wrong with your body. 
you're not normal. Like that wasn't a normal experience of pregnancy. I had kids before most of my friends and more of my friends started having kids and most of their pregnancies weren't all sunshine and rainbows 24 seven. And then I started asking myself the question, like, where does the idea even come from that you're supposed to feel great throughout your whole pregnancy? Because many women just do not feel awesome 24 seven. And, you know, basically it's like, Victorian eugenicists who were telling us like, oh, if you're not feeling good throughout your whole pregnancy and childbirth, that means you hate your own femininity and you're, you know, there's something wrong with you. And so it's like, well, I don't, I'm not taking advice from those people. Like these are not ideas that come from a good place. And so why are we even internalizing them? And so I think sort of giving that history and unpacking the origin of some of these ideas can give you at least more of a blank slate in your mind to build your own values and say what matters to you about the various periods of motherhood and, you know, the role of work in your life, the role of, you know, because again, we're not all going to want the same things. I, a frequent frustration of mine is that, you know, still to this day, so many of the conversations about working motherhood are centered around super high achieving women, CEOs, you know, executives, whatever. Most as opposed people, to actually just working. Yeah. I mean, most people, not even just most people of any gender do not want to be a CEO of a fortune, fortune 500 country company. They don't want to work that hard. They don't want work to be the center of their life in that intense a way and no shade if that's what you want. But it's like, mm-hmm. why are we framing this, you know, the puzzle of putting together a full life, we're letting the super, super high achievers in work set the terms of the conversation and how we should all be aspiring. So that always, that continues to feel incredibly strange to me, considering that's not how most people want to live their lives. So yeah, I think it's, you know, what I was really just hoping was for people to question a lot of things they didn't even think about questioning because they just felt that they were immovable pillars of, you know, health and good motherhood and all of that. So the second thing is, you know, once you're able to say like, oh, wow, these values come from a weird place. I don't even know if they're my values. Then you can start to say like, okay, what are my values? What do I want for my family? What do I want for, you know, the construction of my life? which has changed so much since before I became a parent. So yeah, I think to me, it's more just like what I hope for the book is to help people unlearn bad habits and to be able to start the road to figuring out what what really works for them and their families. How can you take this work? And like when you first started writing about parenting and motherhood, because it has evolved, how like, was it in the process of trying to look for the answers that you realized that there were more questions and more kind of re-understanding what we're even looking to find answers to and the unfairness of it all? Like what, what, how, walk us through this evolution. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I've been reporting on this stuff for longer than I have been a parent and often things bubble up to the front of the media when there's a controversy over something or 
a new study or they're telling you X, Y, and Z about a body of research. And when you actually read the papers, the academic papers, and not just the media coverage, things are a lot more complicated and a lot less cut and dry than, you know, reports about those papers might seem. And it happens with absolutely everything. It's like, it's about, and, and you see this again, like I said, mostly in the zero to five set, because that's when you're, you know, your kid's not giving you any feedback about what's working for them. Like you just, it's all on you. You have to do everything. So all the stuff about breastfeeding versus formula, co-sleeping versus not like all that Mm -hmm. stuff, which it's like, you can see reports where it's, you know, one thing is the best thing. And if you do the other thing, it's a nightmare. And it's just like, well, none of that is actually true. Right. (laughs) All of it is probably fine. The only thing there's like two things in my entire research that are really uniformly like do this or don't do this. Number one, vaccinate your children. Still strangely controversial, but like you don't want your kid getting polio (laughs) or measles. Like that's very like the outcomes for kids who get polio and measles, very bad. Like you don't want to do this. Yes. So, you know, all those old vaccines, like I'm not here to start a fight about COVID vaccines. I'm talking about like the big old vaccines you want to give those to your children. The second, don't beat your children. That's bad. The outcome of beating children, not good. <laughs> like <laughs> those are two things where the research is very clear. It is one directional. Even within that research, there's like variation and like, well, some say it's not so bad. Maybe if you only spank them, like whatever. In general, I feel very confident saying, you shouldn't hit your kids and that you should get them vaccinated. Beyond that, it's not so clear. So (laughs) I just, what I hope for with most of my work is to just turn the temperature down because the temperature always feels like it is on the burners on high. And there are so few things where it needs to be that way. That's so well put. It's so well put to argue about procedural stuff like feeding and sleeping and things that people turn up the temperature so high. And it's like, oh, none of that matters for anything of substance, like literally yep. nothing for your child's long-term outcomes will matter. If you were like, I started solids with this, or I'm chewing the food and then sticking it in their mouths, or I'm co-sleeping or I'm not, or I'm breastfeeding or I'm not. And it, to your point, there's so much nuance and research. And when it gets reported, a lot of research isn't meant to be reported because it's not relevant outside of the context of this particular study, looking at this particular aspect of this particular intervention that is not related to anybody really, except for the folks in that study. And somehow Mm -hmm. it will get translated to like draw five minutes a day with a light pen and your child will have better executive function skills. No, I feel you. I mean, it's also, it's it's just, again, when you actually, if you actually go and read the studies and you dig into them, they're just never, not only do they not sometimes just straight up say something different than what they've been reported to say, but they're never as definitive as, or often, not never, but like often not as definitive as the media reports about them are. You know, I was actually really shocked. I once did a story about baby-friendly hospitals. Do you know about baby-friendly hospitals? If you are a baby-friendly hospital, you have no nursery. The babies have to sleep in the room with 
the family. They are not given pacifiers. You, It's really, really hard to get formula, even if you prefer to have that for your baby or you feel that it's needed for them. It's a whole suite of you know, behaviors, behavioral tweaks that are meant to encourage a, a good start to breastfeeding. If you disag, no one has studied those things all together. They are just like kind of a guess. And actually, if you look at things like pacifiers, there is evidence that it you parents who use pacifiers, their children breastfeed for longer. There's also evidence that it decreases risk of SIDS. Exactly. Yeah, that's that's it's a good example what you're giving. Yeah. So I'm saying like sometimes things are just become part of an organizational collective without actual even at sort of like institutions without actual evidence behind them or at least without strong evidence behind them and so it's just really important if something is actually working for you even if it is not the like most highly recommended thing to not worry too much about it and it also it's just this is part of what makes it so hard because we want to do everything quote unquote perfectly and there's so much pressure on us to do so. And so I don't blame, I only know this stuff because I am a damn journalist whose job it is. Like I am literally paid to look at these studies. (laughs) And even so there's some things where I'll learn and be like, I had no idea. I didn't know that. I, I often think about like, we live in New York city. My kids always sleep with a white noise machine. They Will I sleep with a white noise machine? There's just like, hi, we live next to a busy street and you can some hear, you can hear the cars go by. We hear it. And then there was a study when my older daughter was two that was, I still remember the headline. It was like, your baby's white noise machine might be like ruining their hearing. Yeah, and I was like, totally well, remember that. too late for us. Like, <laughs> like that ship has sailed. <laughs> we have already been doing it for two years. I guess you're going to need hearing aids. And by the way, that child has the best hearing in this entire family. So it's just like, it's too much. You can't keep up. Like, honestly, and I, in the first year of my older daughter's life, I did not read anything. I didn't read any books. I didn't look on the internet. If I had a question, I tried to do what I felt was right. If I had a question, I would ask my mom or a pediatrician. That's it. That's all I did. And if I had one book and it was the Mayo Clinic's Guide to Your Baby's First Year, and they gave it to me when I left the hospital. And I would look at it for stuff like teething or, or you know, when they can have, you know, Tylenol, like just basic, very straightforward information. And I honestly kind of recommend, I know everybody gets their information online now and, you know, from social media, which like, I think, you know, a lot of, you can learn a lot of helpful things that way. But honestly, for my own anxiety and stress, this is the best thing I ever did. You know, for some people, there's some connection, I think, from social media or some way of, you know, feeling like you are not at this alone. And then for some people, it ramps up the anxiety so much and just communicates in your feed the way the algorithms work. It kind of normalizes the things that you were worried about as being something that you should be worried about. And it can just get so out of control. And so, you know, if you are trying to turn off that noise, I love Jessica Yellen's News Not Noise. And I wish there's a way to say that in parenting. Yeah, totally. It's too much. It's too much for all of us. And I think, you know, again, now that we're out of, you know, I know 
coronavirus is still around, but now that, you know, we're most of us are back to living normal lives, I actually really think as much in-person community, friend life that you can participate in and talk to the real people you know and trust, I think that is going to be really helpful for parents and their state of mind. Because, you know, even with my kids being older, having a trusted group of friends that I can talk to about, you know, what my kids are going through, how I'm feeling about what they're going through is so, is just profoundly supportive and helpful. Because often like what you're going through is not actually about the thing. No, yeah. You know, it's about something else. It's about you want to feel not alone. You want to feel not alone. There's like, you know, everyone has like a weird chip on their shoulder about some something because of something that happened in their life when they were growing up or their own relationship with their parents and so I'm always sort of trying to be mindful of that where it's like, this is just my thing that I need to figure out. It doesn't have anything to do with my actual kids. You know what I mean? I I wonder if it's just everybody who gets angry and nasty in a response to anything related to raising kids. It's about what they hear. Like you could say, actually, whether you sleep next to your child or in a separate room won't matter for their connection with you. Someone else heard it as all that time and energy you put into where your child is sleeping didn't matter and you wasted your time. Exactly. And it's so sad because it's like, that's no, that's not what you said, but it does come across as, or, you know, if you make a choice to do something different than your mother-in-law, that what, what the underlying message is, you were a crappy mom. <laughs> yeah. I, that's absolutely right. And I think, you know, everyone is in such a defensive crouch all the time because we're so used to being judged that it's almost like we can't take things neutrally, even when they're offered that way. And it just is breaks my heart that the discourse has to be so negative. I, I mean, exactly what you said. I wrote a piece that was saying like, you know, you don't have to make you know, there's all these things about like holiday magic and making holiday magic. I don't do holiday magic. I am a Jew. Like I just not <laughs> like I'm I'm like I'm my husband's not Jewish. If they he wants to do some Santa nonsense, like that's on him. Like I'm not no, I don't do this. It's like I don't do it. I'm not elf on a shelf. No, get over it. Like get out of here. So I wrote something that was like, yeah, like the sentence was something like you don't have to do this sort of like mirthless craft making and someone, and I it, I was saying it in the context of like, if it is not joyful for you, you don't have to do it. Not that it's dumb. Anyone who, and it was read as anyone who does this or finds this joyful is dumb. And that is right. the opposite of how I meant it. Right. Like I was saying like, it's not mandatory. If it's, if, if it doesn't come easily to you, it is not something you have to do with your kids. That was what I was trying to say. But I understood why she felt, this reader felt offended by that. She was like, I spent all this time, you know, and I, it get, helps, I'm a stay-at-home mom, helps me get through the day and you're making me feel like you're just crapping all over it. And I was like, I totally see why you would read it that way. And that's just really not how I intended it. I intended it for, you know, someone who feels obligated to do this and has, takes no joy out of it. So it sounds like one of the solutions, big picture, picture solutions, which you do talk about, is our capacity to listen to each other in a different kind of way and empathize. Yes. 
Absolutely. And be able to hear that like, oh, I don't enjoy this thing. And it has nothing to do with you or motherhood. I mean, I think some people are even, you know, offended by people saying like, oh, I don't want to have kids. Like, that sounds terrible. It's like, oh, like, are you saying every choice that I made in my life is wrong? Exactly. It's like, no, well, they're just saying it's not for me. It's not for me. It doesn't look like how I want to live my life. And I think that, you know, it, it can be hard to have really deep conversations along those lines, but I think it's so important for all of us. And the other, I mean, the last thing I will say is like, I am just so sick of people complaining about babies crying on planes, like grow up. <laughs> like, still babe, complaining about that? Oh my God. It trends on Twitter like every oh two weeks. My God. They Wait, can't. What's the problem? Which part of it? Is it the crying or the, like, they, do they want the parents to? They want the parents to not fly. They think that oh. babies should never fly. There's no circumstance under which babies should go on a plane. I'm such a crazy flyer that if I, last flight I was on, there was a man with his 18 month old on his lap during the flight. And I was so excited because I'm so messed up about it. The joy of like crying babies and frustrated babies on a plane like takes me out of the fear of the horrible things that happen when you're out of control, which is just what happens to me on airplanes. No, I totally, that makes completely complete sense. And I also think it's like, yeah, nobody likes it when the baby's crying. You think the parents are into that? No, they're not. But we live in a society and sometimes we have to be trapped someplace with crying babies and like offer to help just, or put on your headphones, like grow up. Like I just yeah. like, yeah, it hap- It you know, like no one's happy about this, but like we all have to tolerate discomfort because we live in a, we live in the world. Like, yeah, I just can't, I can't. And I'm also like, my kids aren't little anymore. Like I want to be like the creep who's like, let me hold the baby. Do you want help? Like no, I want to hold the little baby. I'm totally happy to hold a stranger's baby. Me too. If they're not creeped out by it. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> so, I'm in as well. What are and it feels like yeah. we know psychologically that it feels good to help people feel good helping people. So maybe if like those cranks who get so mad about babies on <laughs> a plane, like offered to like took that agita and like offered to help the parents, like we would just live in a better place. <laughs> are there like wishes that you have? for American mothers? I wish that they would have more fun. I wish that they could, not everything is going to be fun. Obviously it's not all sunshine and lollipops 24 hours a day, but I think the stress that we put on them leaves them less time to actually experience joy and fun with their kids because they're so worried about doing it right. And so that's like my one hope is like more laughter, more silliness, less worry about like, oh, is this, you know, am I feeding them the right milk? Because like, what could go in your, what could take up the space in your brain that is occupied by that other stuff? That's what I always think makes me the saddest. It's like all of our brains, and I'm including myself here, are just crammed with all of these worries that are not serving us. They're not serving our families. And think of the possibilities for all of us if we could simply fill that space with something else that brought us all more joy. 
Please note that this episode may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products and services. Individuals on the show may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to in this episode.